You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. It started with Stephen in the book of Acts. And then as we saw, moved into the lives of people like Antipas in the book of Revelation. It affected all of the apostles that began the church and continued the work of Christ. It continued on into the generations to follow them with men like Polycarp. Moving from there was Christians and entire families and churches as they were moving into places all over the world, taking the gospel with them. It was Protestant missionaries in the 15th and 16th century. It was Christians all over the world, increasing more and more with each passing generation. And even now, in the midst of our world, all over the world, there are Christians who are constantly finding themselves in a place of great suffering, imprisonment, and even losing their lives for simply believing in Christ and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Unless we believe that that's something that happens just somewhere else out in the world or in a different point in time, even over the course of this year here in the United States of America, where we, where we build ourselves up on this freedom of religion that we have, we've seen a multitude, many churches burned due to racial and religious prejudice and oppression and persecution. And so it seems clear, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, that when the book of Revelation talks about a time of tribulation, that it is speaking about the big, broad history of the entirety of the time in which the church of Jesus Christ is moving and acting and working throughout the world. But even as we find ourselves in the midst of this time of great tribulation, for over the past 2,000 years, we've also seen the kingdom of God grow. We've seen dark places shaped by the light of Christ. We've seen lives and entire communities and nations renewed by the gospel. We've seen men and women continuing to choose to risk their own comfort, reputation, and even at times their own lives for the cause of Christ. D.A. Carson once said, in the 20th century alone, more Christian missionaries went out into the world than at any other point in the history of the church. But also simultaneously, in the 20th century alone, there were more Christians martyred for their faith than at any other point in time in history. So how do these things coexist? Or maybe a better question is even why do these things coexist? And we're going to see at least a little bit of an answer to that as we continue looking through the book of Revelation. As we pick up in Revelation chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 9 and continue all the way through the entirety of verse 7. And we're going to recognize that there is certainly a certainty of tribulation in life for those who choose to follow after Christ. But we also have the assurance and protection and provision of the gospel. And we're going to look at how we are called to live in that in-between, trusting Christ with everything that we have, but knowing that at times that may mean that our life is uncomfortable at best, but overwhelmingly difficult at worst. And so let's look at this text today as we continue going through the book of Revelation, beginning again in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. This is the word of God. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign, 
Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place, and then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. He called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Asachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing there before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces and before the throne, they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night and in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and they shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor the scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we are so thankful that you know us, that you care for us, and that you love us. 
And God, sometimes that's difficult to understand when life is hard, especially if and when we find ourselves in a position where life is hard because of our faith. God, we do just want to take up this moment and recognize the, the freedom and the comfort that we get to live in for the most part. But God, we know that we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering for the gospel. God, those who have come before us that have suffered for the gospel, God, we pray for your justice, provision, and protection in their lives. But God, we also pray that you would teach us to be a people of endurance. And that we would understand the good gift that you've given us, that you have sealed us as your own, and that you are fitting us for eternity. So God, this is an intense passage. We just ask that you help us to see clearly, that you help us to understand to the best of our ability what we're reading and what we're hearing, and that everything that we do as a response would honor and glorify you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here last week, we found ourselves in the middle of this dramatic picture of something cosmic taking place. John getting a vision of this spiritual reality that's taking place all over the world and throughout the ages. And we see that taking place in the form of Jesus, the Son of God, walking to the throne of God and taking a scroll out of his hands. And on that scroll is written the fullness of God's plan and what God is going to do in and throughout this world but it's sealed up tight with seven different seals. And Jesus is the only one strong enough to break those seals and bring God's plan into fruition. And so he starts breaking the seals. And then we see this incredible picture of what John describes as four horsemen riding out into the world. And we saw last week that each one of these horsemen represent a false kingdom in our world trying to vie for our attention, trying to pull us away from Christ, trying to give us promises through power, through politics, through economics and finances, trying to distract us from the mission that we have in Christ, and yet only leading towards more death, destruction, and confusion. And so picking up there, we go right into Jesus opening the fifth seal. But this one's a little different. Verse 9 says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And so here we get this picture with no horsemen, no counterfeit kingdoms, no picture of what's going on in the world because of sin and brokenness. But instead, we get this visual image of the souls of people who had died. But not just people who had died, but clearly people that belonged to Christ, clearly people who followed after Jesus and who had been killed because of their faith. But now they find themselves around the throne. We get this picture of them underneath the altar of God. And just like all the other beings that we've seen around the throne of God in this heavenly window that John has given us through the book of Revelation, they're crying out to God, but their cries sound a lot different. The angels and the elders and the creatures around the throne, they're singing these songs of praise and adoration and glory to God. But when we see these martyrs around the throne of God, their cry has a much different tenor. In verse 10, it says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so this is a strange picture because here we have a picture of people in heaven mourning. 
people around the throne of God broken and sad and crying out to God. And that's not usually something we identify with heaven, right? People, we think weird things when people die. And so we always use these platitudes like, oh, they're going to a better place, or at least they don't feel this anymore, or at least they're not experiencing this anymore. But when we look at this passage of scripture here, clearly those who were killed for their faith are still wearing the full tragedy and trauma and brokenness that came from losing their lives for the cause of Christ. And they've been doing it for quite some time. And their cries are haunting. John says they cry out to God, sovereign Lord, holy and true. And so that sounds like praise, but actually it kind of sounds more like confusion because they say, God, you're sovereign. You're in control. You are the governor and the ruler of all things. You are the Lord of all creation. You are holy, holy, holy. You are true from the inside out. And yet we have suffered on your behalf. We lost everything for your cause and for your sake. And so if you're really all these things, why haven't you intervened to this point? Why haven't you brought justice for your people? And this isn't the first time that God's people have made this cry. We see it in the life of the psalmist. When he says, how long, O Lord, are you going to allow me to suffer? How long will the righteous suffer in vain? The prophets come to God over and over and over again saying, how long are you going to let wickedness run rampant? How long are you going to let your people suffer? And so this isn't a new song, but this is longer. This is a representation of Christians who some lost their life within the first generation of Christianity. People, again, like Stephen and Antipas, who died before the conclusion of the New Testament was written. And ever since they've lost their lives, they've been around the throne of God, crying out for justice. And what's incredible is that, that this would be a list of people who we would probably say, they're the best of us. They're the ones who were so grounded in their faith in Christ that even when they looked at the most horrifying thing they could imagine, death, torture, imprisonment, all of those things, they faced it boldly and they endured into it and through it all the way to the point of death. And so it would seem logical that when these people cried out to God, he would drop everything and say, of course, absolutely, I'm going to avenge this right now. How could they hurt you? How could they do these things? But that's not what he says. In verse 11, It says they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so in response for all that they've done, they received this gift of a white robe. This picture of purification, this picture of being made whole and complete in Christ, all their sins forgiven, all their brokenness taken away, restored in the image of Christ spiritually, but still wearing the weight of what was done to them. And God looks at them and he says, no, you need to rest a little longer. You need to bear this weight a little longer. You need to endure this a little longer. But why? Why wouldn't God just take care of it immediately? Why wouldn't God just step in and avenge when his people called for him? Well, he gives us that answer, doesn't he? He says to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete 
who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God says, wait a little longer. There's more of you coming. There are more people who are going to follow after Christ and lose their lives of it. The number's not finished yet. And this is both a difficult and somewhat comforting reminder of God's patience, that God doesn't do anything in a hurry. It's a reminder of God's timing, that he has a plan and a design for everything that's going to take place, but also a reminder that God has a purpose for everything that takes place, including suffering. And we're reminded here that these people weren't martyred in vain, but God was using it to bring about his kingdom on earth. It was in heaven, and he hasn't overlooked their pain. He hasn't overlooked their suffering, but he's worked it for the good of those around them. He's worked it for the good of the generations that would follow them, and they have the promise that one day he'll bring justice for what was done. And then we move right into the opening of this sixth seal, wherein we get a picture of what that will look like. And verse 12 through 17 is filled with just all of the revelation imagery that you could possibly imagine or figure out the things that we try to attach to all sorts of things and try to figure out, and Christians have been throughout generations, and it gets intense. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was an earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon like blood, and the stars start falling out of the sky like a fig tree sheds its winter fruit, which mine is doing right now because it thinks it's fall, and it's also a thousand degrees outside. It's a very confusing time to be alive, much like this would be, and we see basically the whole of creation start to shake itself loose because God is coming in judgment. And so he says, this is what it's going to look like. One day I'm going to bring the fullness of my wrath and my judgment to the world that's rejected me. And we see a harsh difference between this and what we saw last week at the four horsemen. That was a picture of basically humanity judging ourselves for turning away from God. This is a picture of God bringing judgment to the world in its fullness. And we see this picture. It says there that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, they hid themselves. And this is a reminder of exactly what all of those counterfeit kingdoms that we discussed last week, that it, that's exactly what they are. That when the fullness of the power of God comes into the world, all these other governments and principalities run and hide because nothing can stand against God. And there's even an admission there saying, for the great day of wrath has come and who can stand. And so there is this promise that God is going to bring judgment for those that have lost their lives, for those who have suffered for Christ. But for the time being, they're told to rest a little while longer. And this is a pretty intense scene. And if we're going chronologically, because again, there's these, we've been told there's seven seals around the scroll. First four, we looked at those last week. Now we've broken off seal five and seal six. We've seen Jesus do all of these things. And so it would make sense logically that now Jesus is going to break open the seventh seal. But instead, we take a little bit of a breath. And then we enter into chapter seven. And John says that he sees these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth and they're holding back the wind. They're holding back God's ultimate judgment. And it says that God speaks to them. And he says, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. 
And what we see here is that God is saving the fullness of his plan, the opening of that scroll, the full revelation of everything that he's doing until he seals and saves the fullness of his people. This is a mentality that Peter echoes in 2 Peter chapter 3. And he says this, starting in verse 8. He says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works are done will be exposed." And so Peter helps us to interpret this passage a little bit, saying the reason why these martyrs are told to wait, the reason why God continues to allow everything to go on in light of the world is because he's not done saving his people yet. That he has a plan and a purpose and that he's not acting slowly, but in fact, he's acting patiently because even though he is a just and righteous and holy God, he is also a compassionate, loving and merciful God who desires that no one should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance and trust and follow in him. And so he's waiting a little longer to see more people come to trust and know him and to have this relationship with him. And we see this language here where he says that they're all sealed. He says, do not harm the earth or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And that's a weird thing because there's a lot of people in this room that would identify as Christians. None of us have weird marks on our forehead. In fact, it would be a little shocking and bizarre if we did. Although I would think it was funny if I had one, like I could have done this this morning and put one on and then be like, where are all of yours? I guess it's only me. But when the Bible talks about this, this isn't just a New Testament thing. Remember, the Old Testament is our best friend when it comes to interpreting, especially what John is saying in the book of Revelation. And all throughout scripture, when God is marking his people, it's this mark of being sealed. And we see, especially when it's talking spiritually, that there's usually three places that God seals his people. He seals their hearts or writes their law on their hearts. He seals them on their hands and he seals them on their heads. And this is a picture of the total salvation and restoration that God brings to his people, that he renews our hearts, our emotions, and our spirits, that he puts his work in our hands, and that he puts his minds on ours and saves us from the inside out. And so God says, I'm not through saving people yet. And then John says something that's a little confusing. He says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, here's one of our big revelation terms, right? If you've grown up in or around church or just around Christianity in general, maybe you've heard this number before, and it's one that's caused a lot of confusion, a lot of controversy, and even especially in the mid-1800s spawned all sorts of false pseudo-Christian cults that turned into religions, And John says, this is the number sealed from every tribe of Israel. There's 12,000 from Judah, from Reuben, from Gad, from Asher, from Naphtali, from Manasseh, from Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. He says, these 144,000, that's the totality of the people sealed by God, which should make us all a little uncomfortable. Because last I heard, the number of Christians all around the world, people that profess to know Christ and follow Christ is somewhere around a billion people. That, again, not much of a math major, but that's more than 144,000. 
And so again, maybe there would just be one of us with a little mark on our head. And maybe that's why we don't have it. Maybe we're not part of this number. What do we do with this? Well, to figure it out, we need to do a little bit of math. And admittedly, again, I am not the math major in my family. That belongs to my brother. But I can do some basic things, especially when it comes to Bible math. And so a couple big numbers, actually a few big numbers that you need to know. 12 is a really important number in the book of Revelation. We'll see it pop up time and time and time again. And here, John tells us that this number is rooted in the tribes of the sons of Israel. And I'm not going to say their names again because I did it twice and I feel like I did it really well, but the third time doesn't feel like it's going to be the charm. And so if you want them, they're there. And so the 12 tribes of Israel all represented there with 12,000 people from each tribe. And so the number 12 is doubled again there, right? Another important 12 are the disciples that Jesus chose, the apostles that founded the church. And so we have this big picture of the representation of the full body of Christ. The 12 tribes of Israel as God was using them to bring salvation into the world. The 12 apostles of Jesus who were moving and starting the church. But why the thousand? Why 12,000 in that instance? Well, the number 1,000 has another big important meaning inside not just the book of Revelation, but inside the New Testament as a whole. We saw that in 2 Peter just a minute ago. Peter says, don't be fooled. A day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like a day. Now, I don't believe that's the actual time conversion rate when it comes to how God experiences time. It's not literally meant to say that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Peter is drawing us this picture of something small, one, and something large, a thousand. We also see in scripture that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, clearly, God is not limited to the cattle on a thousand hills. The cattle on the thousand and first hill are, man, I wish God loved us too. Moo. <laughs> I need to moo. But this is a picture of God owning the totality of creation. And so a thousand is this number that represents almost an unimaginable number. It's the number where we would cap it saying, you know, for us, it would be like a billion, this big number that we just say to represent a lot of other numbers. And so John is using this numerology to say, there's 12 from, from the old, there's 12 from the new. And when they come together, when God brings this together, the 144,000 is a representative number of the fullness of all of God's people. Now, how do we know this? One of the things that can be difficult sometimes in, in scripture is there's some things added in here to help. So chapter numbers, verse numbers, and maybe your Bible even has little headings above certain parts. And mine does. And it divides verses four through eight from verse nine. But if we read all of those things together, it helps us make a little more sense. It says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe, sons of Israel, all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000 total. Then verse nine, he says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people's languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And so John gives us this symbolic number, but then when he looks at what he sees around the throne of God, the fullness of God's people, he said it's a great multitude that no one could number. And so clearly that's not 144,000 because we can number it because it, we did. <laughs> It says it right there, 144,000. And so when John looks at this, the fullness of it, it's this incredible multitude. And what he sees before him is absolutely astonishing and beautiful. This is the fullness of God's people. 
This is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made to Abraham thousands of years before, saying that your people are going to bless the entire world, and we see it right there. And it's amazing. This is a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. And it says that they, or I guess we could say we, have our own song. It says, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. And here we get a picture of the church with a capital C, of all those who belong to Christ, who were redeemed and saved by his death and resurrection and his grace and mercy. And the picture that we see there is amazing. And sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap where we view the kingdom of God, where we view the church through our homogenous, myopic kind of viewpoint, thinking that Christianity looks like me, Christianity sounds like me, Christianity comes from the place that I come from, Christianity has the experiences that I have, or maybe the experiences that my church has. But then when we see this picture, it blows that out of the water. It's not small and myopic and homogenous. This is a large, beautiful, diverse kingdom. I think we need to ask ourselves the question, are we going to wait to eternity to experience this? Are we going to wait until eternity to celebrate this, to celebrate the beauty and the diversity that makes up the kingdom of God? Because as we look here in this passage of scripture, the angels around the throne, they're not going to wait. They look at this picture of the people of God that have been redeemed through the death and resurrection of Christ, and they are blown away, and they start singing songs of praise to God, saying, amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. The angels around the throne of God saw us and were amazed, and they looked at God, and they say, look what you did these people that are broken with sin, these people that are chasing after false kingdoms, these people that are prone to violence and hatred and tribalism and nationalism, you broke through those boundaries and you called them together under nothing more than the banner of Christ. It's time that we start celebrating the global, multilingual, multicultural nature of the kingdom and not only that we celebrate it, but that we reflect it. We talked about the importance of worshiping on earth as it is in heaven when we looked at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, that our worship should reflect the worship around the throne, and our churches should be a small sample of the Christians around the throne in its fullness, coming from different places with different experiences, from different backgrounds, from different nations, tribes, and tongues, even different languages meeting under the same roof, celebrating the goodness of God. And lest you think we can't really do that here in Loganville, absolutely we can. We just need to be intentional about loving across differences and not clinging on to our tribes or our kingdoms, but celebrating the goodness of God and taking the gospel everywhere that we go. Because that's the picture of the kingdom that we see in its fullness. And then one of these elders that are around the throne of God walks up to John and he asks him a question. He said, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And this had to weird John out a little bit. 
because this is one of the elders that sits around the throne of God. They seem to have a pretty good understanding of everything that's going on in heaven and on earth. And this elder strolls up to John and says, hey man, who are these guys? Where did they come from? There's a bunch of them. It's like a Georgia game or something. That was really overwhelming. Just the pictures that I saw made me just ugh, inside. Too many people. I guess I better get used to it though. <laughs> Celebrate the, the bigness of the kingdom, but eh, not that big. Sorry, catching myself in a little, a little double standard here. He says, who are these people? And John says, I imagine you probably know. Why don't you tell me? And he does. The elder says, these are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And we see this picture of, of the first deliverance that, that someone receives when they trust in Christ. It says they've made their robes white. And this is a picture of that forgiveness that comes in salvation because these aren't perfect people around the throne of God. These are people who come from, yes, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And every single one of these people fits under that banner that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the very first thing that God does for us is that he redeems us, that he buys us out of our sin, and that he washes us clean from the sin and the shame and guilt that we earned. But that's not all he does for us. Because then we see this, this hymn that's spoken over them. It says, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter with his presence. They shall not hunger no more, neither shall they thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them nor the, any scorching heat for the lamb in their midst and the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a victory song. It's saying over the fullness of the people of God. And what we're seeing here is that this isn't a group of people who are simply escaping tribulation, but these are people who have conquered tribulation through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the hope that's sealed on the gospel in our hearts. And we see the fullness of that reward in this song that's saying, it says one day when Christ returns and makes all things new, we'll be around the throne of God once and forevermore and he'll shelter us, he'll protect us with his presence. There'll be no more tribulation, there'll be no more sorrow. He says you're not gonna be hungry anymore. You're not gonna be thirsty anymore. The sun won't strike you or the heat won't guide you. That Jesus will protect you like a good shepherd. And not only that, but all those scars, all of those things that came through tribulation and brokenness of your life, God will reach down in the same hands that sculpted the universe will touch your face and wipe away your tears. And again, this isn't a they. This isn't us. This is true for any single person who has put their faith in Christ yesterday, today, or until Christ comes. And this is our promise if you are a follower of Christ. This is our song. This is our victory for every man, woman, and child who lives for Christ through sickness, pain, oppression, the good times, and the bad, and everything in between. And even if following Christ costs us our life, as N.T. Wright says, that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, took the weapon out of the hands of the last enemy, that fourth horseman in those chariots. He took the, in, the power out of the hands of death to where Paul says death has no more sting and no more victory because Jesus took that away and instead gave us the victory over not only sin and shame and brokenness, but also even death itself. All the pain and the brokenness of life. 
one day be made whole for all of eternity for anyone who trusts in Christ. Sometimes we make this thing so small about what it means to trust in Jesus and to be saved, but it is so big. And it costs us nothing. Jesus did all of the work for us. All we have to do is trust in Christ and follow in Christ. And every promise that's spoken over this church is going to be true for each and every one of us. And so if you're here and you've never followed after Jesus in salvation, then please don't leave here this morning without talking with me or one of our elders about what it means to be saved by Christ and to go through baptism in this hope that we have in Jesus. Because in the midst of all the sin and brokenness in our own lives and in the world around us, in the midst of all the counterfeit kingdoms, God is working. And he is sealing and protecting and saving his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And now this doesn't mean a life with absence of tribulation or difficulty or hardship. In fact, the opposite. We are promised in scripture that if we follow Christ, that it's not ever going to be easy. And some of us may experience differing degrees of tribulation and hardship and brokenness and sickness and all these things in our lives. But the reality is all of us will encounter some of that at some time. But what this does mean is that we've been given everything that we need to be a people of endurance and perseverance. To be able to look at hardship and difficulty and brokenness, knowing that, A, we don't go through it alone because we have a God who loves us more than we can imagine. And his son, Jesus, gave everything for us. And the Holy Spirit is a counselor who loves us and cares for us. But also, we've been given each other to love one another and care for each other and bear one another's burdens and lift one another up. And so we can absolutely endure whatever comes with an unwavering hope. Because as John shows us here, God has sealed us by Christ for eternity. And we need to be the kind of people that live with that confidence each and every day. And even if called upon to die with that same confidence, knowing that Christ is sufficient, not only for salvation here and now, but for all of eternity. So let's cling on to that hope. As we're about to see that living hope that doesn't pass away. But living each day, trusting in the protection and provision and victory of Jesus and moving each and every day as we love God with our heart, soul, and mind and strength and love our neighbors, ourselves, and care for those in need, those who are broken and hurting, we know that we are doing that on a pathway to something far greater than we could ever imagine. Father God, I just want to ask that you forgive me for the times when I don't believe this, or even the times when I just don't live like I believe it. Father God, it's hard to, to think about just suffering in general and the pain and tribulation that comes with just living in a broken world. But God, we are so thankful that you've provided for us in Jesus everything that we need. Not just to have an easy, healthy, happy life, but to be the kind of people who can endure through great difficulty because we know that we have a better hope to come. And so God, if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in you, God, I pray that you just draw them to you, that you save them by your grace, that you show them how much you love them and what you did for them through Jesus and that they wouldn't leave here without talking with someone about being baptized. 
God, I pray for anyone in this room who feels that they're going through some difficulty, some hardship, some brokenness, internal, external, or everything in between. God, I pray that you would give them comfort and peace in the midst of tribulation. That you would give them a small taste of eternity by just surrounding them with your protection and love. That you would give them a peace that surpasses all understanding, even when peace is hard to find. And that God, all of us, live our lives in a way that declare that we believe the truth that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, and that when he does, he's coming, bringing heaven to earth, and we get to be a part of that. So thank you for all you do. You are worthy of all glory and honor and thanksgiving and praise and power. God, we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus.